All right, if you have a Bible, grab it and make your way to Hebrews chapter 10. Uh, we'll pick up in verse 19 where Christy just left off. While you're getting there, uh, how many of you have heard of, I don't know if it's a store or a restaurant, either way, but in Murfreesboro, I think they have one called Nothing Bunt Cakes. Yeah, you got, you got some out there. Okay, so Nothing Bunt Cakes, um, you know, kind of a corny, punny name. Um, and there's actually quite like a few restaurants that begin with these same kind of punny, corny names. I've started like looking them up this week. And so let me give you a couple of my favorites. There is a fish truck specializing in fish that calls itself the Codfather. <laughs> and there's a burger place called Burgatory. And then there's a frou-frou smoothie place called Kale Me Crazy. A nacho place called Nacho Daddy. And then my favorite, a barbecue place called the Notorious P.I.G. But back, you're like, what does this have to do with anything? This may be a stretch from illustration, but we're trying to get there. When we were in college, there was a corny, punny named place that um, Sarah liked and I tolerated. And it was called Lettuce, L-E-T-T-U-C-E, Soup Rise You. It was a soup and salad place, all right? So his name was like a bad dad joke, uh, which is probably why they are out of business now. But that was their name, and... This passage that we come to here in chapter 10, verses 19 through 25, has kind of a corny, punny nickname, and uh, it's called the lettuce passage, because three times it's going to say, let us do this, let us do that, and let us do this other thing. And while theologically it has this corny name, what it commands is life-giving, life-giving to us. It's grace upon grace. It's God's aboundingness, new word, in his grace and mercy. Um, steadfast love, that oozing out the side of the waffle maker because there's too much pressed in there. That's just how God is with his grace and mercy. And it comes on the heels of like a lot of thick, rich doctrinal teaching. Like We have been in chapters 8. And nine for a while, just so much packed in there that the author just kind of summarizes here in what Christy read and even the first few verses of our passage today. Just so much summary of we have a better high priest. We have a better mediator with a better covenant who offers a better sacrifice. And so on the basis of all that, like all that stuff's building to these let us passages, these let us commands. And they're corporate. It's not let me, it's let us. It's about us as a people. And so all that's been said about the high priest and the, 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 the better sacrifice and the better mediator and the better covenant all comes together here building to these three corporate commands. And y'all again, it is life-giving. I've been so blessed and enriched this week myself thinking on these truths, and so I just want to hit them one at a time. Pretty straightforward uh, this morning. But before we do that, starting in verse 22, verses 19 through 21, the author 
gives us a summarizing statement of everything that 8, 9, and 10 has been very much about. Like why we can even be commanded to do these things. Like how can we even be commanded to these life-giving things? Well, verses 19 through 21. But let's read the passage in full together. Therefore, okay, based on everything we've been talking about in chapters 8, 9, and 10. Brothers and sisters, since... So here it is, since, because we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And so again, he begins with a summary of chapters 8, 9, and 10. Like the, the lettuce commands he's going to give in verses 22 through 25 are based upon the realities of verses 19 through 21. First of all, that we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. Now, listen real close. If it wasn't God speaking through the author here, what the author would be saying would be blasphemy. Because you recall how the holy places refers to like the tabernacle and the temple, and particularly the most holy place, or the holy of holies. And no one could go in there but the high priest. And the high priest could only go in there one day a year under very strict uh, instructions. He's got a rope tied around him in case he dies. They can pull him out. He's got blood that he takes in there with him. And so the whole thing, like if anybody else tried to go into the Holy of Holies, they die. So the whole thing is just screaming exclusion. You cannot come into the presence of God. But now because of Christ's life, death, and resurrection, because He is a better mediator of a better covenant, He is a better sacrifice. Offering a once-for-all sacrifice. Because of that, believers can enter into the holy place, a.k.a. His presence. That's what the holy place represented. And note it says, with confidence. If you don't have a Bible with you, grab one around you. Flip to Hebrews so you can see all I'm doing is showing you what the Bible says. Not like it's with confidence we can come in, but not confidence in ourselves. Confidence in Christ. The the curtain, the veil has been removed. It's been torn in two. We have direct access to the Father. And then on top of that, we have a great high priest over the house of God right now in the presence of God interceding for us. And so because of all of that, we get this command. So number one in your notes, draw near to God. Draw near to God. Like on the basis of all these things, 
Because Jesus is the true and better sacrifice and the true and better high priest, we can draw near to God. Like the veil is gone, sin is gone, Jesus has taken it, and we can come into the very presence of God. Like closeness, intimacy, relationship. Well, then in what manner or what posture do we draw near to Him? Well, look at what the text says, verse 22. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Like, we really are. If you're in Christ, you really have been sprinkled clean. Like, we don't have to fake it. We really have been. And unlike the blood of bulls and goats that can't do anything for the conscious, like, we've been purified all the way. Like, water ceremonial in the Old Testament, it just purified the exterior. It had no ability to go down into the soul and purify the interior. But Christ has done that. Those who are in Christ have been purified. And the image of baptism is just a picture of that. It's what Mark was displaying this morning. He's been buried with Christ. He's ready to walk in the newness of life. It was an external symbol of an internal reality. But the emphasis in this verse here in verse 10 is on full assurance. That's the emphasis. Like the true heart that it mentions. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance. The true heart here isn't about a heart of morality or works. That that will come in verse 24. But the true heart here is a heart that's assured of God's love. And because of that, draws near. Someone says, but Joe, you said that we draw near because of the sacrifice of Jesus and because He's the high priest and a better covenant and a better mediator and a better sacrifice. Yes, but why did Jesus come to do all those things? Because of love. It was love. 1 John 4.10 In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. It was love. And so just straight up, bona fide, Jesus loves you and that's why we can draw near. And the moment I say Jesus loves you, many of us doctrinally start wanting to back up and be like, well, we need to explain this from a doctrinal position of blah, 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 blah. Commenting on this, uh, Brennan Manning, I'm reading a book by his right now, makes this observation. He, t- he first talks about creation, how observing creation and the science and the stars and the solar system and the universe, we're enamored and enchanted by God's power. And rightly so. We stutter and stammer about God's holiness. We tremble before God's majesty. And yet, we grow squeamish and skittish before God's love. I'm flabbergasted by the widespread refusal across this land to think big about a loving God. Like nervous thoroughbreds being guided to the starting gate at Churchill Downs, many Christians bray and bridle and bolt at the revelation of God's all-embracing love in Jesus Christ. Men, if you are in Christ, God really does love you. Not just tolerate. He really does love you. And if you are in Christ, 
God really is pleased with you. And this isn't just mushy, you know, stuff I'm saying to try to make you feel better about yourselves. This is a biblical reality. Like after John baptized Jesus, we read, The Spirit descended on Jesus like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. My friends, if you're in Christ, that means you've been adopted into Christ's family. And He loves you the same way He loves His Son, Jesus. You're like, whoa, what? That's crazy. Mm Mm-hmm. I know. Colossians 3.3 says that our lives are hidden with Christ. And what that means is that when God looks at you, He not only sees you as the unique creation He made you to be, but He sees you covered or hidden by the perfect life of His Son. Like in the great exchange, what happened is Jesus took your sins completely And he gave you his righteousness, his perfections, his sinlessness, his sonship. That's what makes it such good news. That's why it's amazing grace. We're not just wiped clean and do the best you can. No, we're wiped clean and given the righteousness of Christ as our very own, credited to our account. We did nothing to receive it. He did it all. And so that's why, like, if you are in Christ, God sees you. Covered, hidden in Christ, and therefore, beloved and well-pleased. Like, He loves you, and He likes you. Which is real, I don't like myself half the time. How crazy is this? If you are in Christ, the Spirit of God's love and pleasure is resting on you just as it did with Jesus, despite you, because of Christ. And it's not going anywhere, which means you don't have to go looking for it. You don't have to go looking for something to find affirmation, to find fulfillment, to find meaning. Oh, if I could just get that, or if I could just get that, or if I could achieve this, or if this person would think this of me. Listen, if that, like, it won't work. Trust me. Tried it. Doesn't work. None of that will fulfill you, satisfy you, give you what you're looking for. Maybe a hit, but it'll be gone. But if you're in Christ, you already have it. So press into Christ. Or in other words, draw near to God. Brendan Manning again. The question which the gospel of grace puts to us is simply this. Who shall separate you from the love of Christ? Right? Romans 8. What, what are you afraid of? Are you afraid that your weakness could separate you from the love of Christ? It can't. Are you afraid that your inadequacies could separate you from the love of Christ? They can't. Are you afraid that your inner poverty could separate you from the love of Christ? It can't. Difficult marriage? Loneliness? Anxiety over the children's future? They can't separate you from Jesus' love. Negative self-image? It can't. Economic hardships? Racial hatred? Crime? They can't. Rejection by loved ones? Suffering by loved ones? That can't separate you. Persecution by authorities? 
what the students of TTI face can't separate them, can't separate us. Mistakes, fears, uncertainties can't separate us from Christ's love. The gospel of grace calls out nothing can separate you from the love of God made visible in Jesus Christ. And so, dear friends, draw near. God's calling you to this. He's inviting you to this, and He's commanding you. Draw near to me. I want to be near to you. I've made a way to be near to you. Draw near to me. Come. Like you're so loved. Come to Abba. Come to Daddy. Come to Father. But not only are we to draw near, number two in your notes, we're to hold fast to the truth. Hold fast to the truth. So look at verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And so we're to hold fast to the truth. Now, what truth? Like major tenets of the faith that we should hold fast to? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we're supposed to do that. Paul tells Timothy, keep a watch over yourself and over the doctrine. And so, yes, we must do that. But I don't think that's what the author's intention is in this passage. It is a true statement, but I don't think that's the author's intention in this passage. The author's point here, I think he's just talking about one truth. One simple, life-shaking truth. And it's this, and I want you to write this down, like in parentheses, after number two. Hold fast to the truth, and in parentheses, here's, here's that truth, that Jesus saves sinners. That's the truth we hold fast to. Hold fast to the truth that Jesus saves sinners. Like That's the confession of our hope. We hold fast to that. And Jesus saved sinners. Like That's why he came. He came to rescue busted up, broken, don't have it together people. And the reason it's so important for us to hang on to this is because if we are honest, or maybe just I'll speak for myself, if I'm honest, I often fluctuate between self-loathing and self-righteousness. And I bet if you're honest, you do too. And I think we do this because we are deluded into thinking at some level, maybe even subconsciously. We would not verbalize. We know our theology enough not to verbalize it. But I think we live at least subconsciously at some level as if we save ourselves or keep ourselves saved by how we live. And so we develop a false sense of security from our good works, from our having our quiet time every single day, and just living out a, a, a proverbial attitude of, you know, uh, I don't drink, I don't cuss, I don't chew, and I don't go with girls who do. Like, we live our morality. <laughs> and what happens then, as one guy puts it, is our halo gets a little too tight. And a carefully disguised attitude of moral superiority results. Or, we are appalled at our inconsistency and devastated that we haven't lived up to what we should live up to. 
And so we ride this roller coaster of elation and depression over and over and over and over. And this, unlike when you go to like Six Flags or something, you want to just keep riding the roller coaster over and over and over and not have to wait in line, we want to get off this roller coaster of elation and depression. Elation and depression. And we can get off. But only when we accept the hard but gospel truth that we are sinners through and through. Those who've trusted in Jesus, yes, we are believers, we've been forgiven, but we are still sinners in this flesh until Jesus comes to take us home. And we don't, like we're not, we're not sinners because we sin, we sin because we are sinners. Like it's who we are. It is in our nature. And as such, we must accept the truth. No, I can't keep myself good by my quiet times and my morality and all these things. Like, but only by admitting I am powerless and I am hopeless on my own. I am a pauper at God's door of mercy. But again, he's, he's abounding. He's abounding in grace and mercy and steadfast love. He's not a miser. He's abounding in these things. And so we hang on to the truth that I'm a sinner. And I praise God, Jesus came to save sinners. He didn't come for the righteous. He came for the sinners. And that's us. And that, and that alone is our hope. That's our hope. But friends, it's a guaranteed hope. Because look at the end of verse 23 there. He who promised is faithful. Like, he will bring us all the way home. He will do this. We will persevere until the end because God does not abandon his children. Period dot. Like, for God to fail in this, for him to be unfaithful, even as uh, my men's group was reading a book this week, he would have to un-God himself. He would have to cease to be God because faithful is just who he is. It's who he is by nature. And so hold fast to the truth that Jesus came to save sinners. And he who promised is faithful. And so press on. Keep going. You are loved. You are sealed. You are safe in Christ. Press on. And then finally, number three, in your notes. Stir one another up to love and good works. Stir one another up to love and good works. Look at verse 24. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And so this is a summons to a life of loving community. Because again, all this stuff is corporate, right? Verse 19, you see, we have... Verse 21, we have, and then let us, let us, let us. It's not let me draw near, it's let us. It's not let me hold fast, it's let us. And so we can't have confidence and full assurance apart from the church. Like, Jesus created it. It's His idea. He calls it His bride. He says, I came to die for the church. That's why the church is indispensable. And so to neglect the church 
Or even specifically, as the author says here, to neglect gathering, to neglect attending. If you're in good health, to neglect those things. Or if you just prefer watching on the live stream, like, hello, good to see you. If you just like watching your PJs, that's not gathering. You need to be here with us. We love you and we want to see you. Look forward to it next week, Sunday. But to neglect, like for real, neglect attending is to cut yourself off from the very means that Christ is designed to grow you, strengthen you, and bless others through you. To say, no, 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 I don't need other people. I can go it alone is to say, Jesus, you are a liar. That's kind of a big deal. And so gathering for worship is one of the most basic, just fundamental, like if you are a Christian, you go to church. It's, It's like if you are a Titans fan. You are used to being disappointed. (laughs) You are used to being let down. It's just kind of fundamental to being a Titans fan. Fundamental to being a Christian is go to church. Basic. I go on the pages of Scripture. You will not find a single Christian who's not yoked to a local church. You're like, what about the Ethiopian eunuch? Well, he wasn't a Christian. He became a Christian and he went back to Ethiopia and he started a church. And so this means, as Christians, we can't be individualists. We are our brother's keeper. As part of the job, we watch over one another. And specifically, it says we are to consider. Like, let's just look at these verbs here. Three verbs I want to show you. Just tracking the verbs in this passage. The first one says we must consider how to stir up, right? So consider. This has to do with our thinking. Like, we have to shift from a self-focused mindset, which is how we are by nature, to an others-focused mindset, which is how we are by Christ. A self-focused mindset is a consumeristic mindset. What can I get out of this? A others-focused mindset is a Christ-focused mindset. How can I serve? How can I give? How can I bless someone else? And this can be as simple as how you approach entering a room. So I get elementary students and uh, middle school and high school students. I I want your attention very specifically, but adults as well. In um, some of these ministries, we, we talk a lot as pastors. I've heard uh, my wife talk about it, that there's kind of two ways you can enter into a room. One of them is you walk into the room all, all silently wanting people to come love you. Like, here I am. You may not be boastful in saying it like that, but it is, it is an attitude of here I am, someone come love me. Or, and that's a self-focused way, and I get, well, I'm introverted. I do get that. I understand. Different dispositions. But that's one way. I'll come back to that in a minute. Another way you can walk into a room instead of here I am, love me, is there you are, I'll love you. And that's how Christ calls us to walk into a room. It's not for wait for people to come love us, but for us to be going to love them. Looking around the room, whether it's uh, a Sunday school class, this room, or just wherever you are in life, your sphere of life, school, work, and noticing those who... Don't have someone around them. And going to them. Not here I am. People come love me, but there you, I see you. I love you. I see you. I love you. 
That's a Christ-focused way. And you're like, but that makes me uncomfortable. I do get that. But as followers of Jesus, who was made pretty doggone uncomfortable for us, I think we can be a little bit uncomfortable for Him. Not here I am. There you are. Right? That's how we consider, one way that we consider others. But specifically, we're to consider, what, we're, what we are to consider is how to stir them up. Like literally, this means to incite or provoke. And, and, and we, we kind of know this, like that that's what stir up. I mean, think about all the phrases that we have. It's like manure. The more you stir it, the more it stinks. Right? Or stir crazy. Or stir the pot. I actually stole these from John. Quite a stir. Stir up a hornet's nest. And so while we may not exactly want to do that, like stir up a hornet's nest, we do want to live and talk and act in a way that's provocative in the best sense of the word to other Christians. We want them to be reminded of spiritual truth because of what we're saying, because of what we're living, and not just in cleanliness. Look at me, I'm doing great. That's when we drift over into that too tight of a halo, self-righteousness stuff, but being willing to admit, I blew it here. I sinned. That was wrong. I am sorry. I repent. I should not have done that. Parents, that's one of the best things you can say to your kids. Teach them by your actions because you're going to sin against them. Right, kids? I have sinned against y'all plenty. Teach them how to repent. Show them what that looks like. Admit you're wrong. Agree with God about it. Turn from it. Run to Christ to cleanse it again. That's part of how we set an example as well. And the hope is to incite them, to provoke them, not just for provoking sake, right? But to love and good works. Love. And I think that's huge. Like the goal of the church isn't to have just doctrinal rigidity. As important as that is. But it's love and good works. Like if you have all the doctrinal rigidity in the world, but you have not love clanging gong, right? Symbol. You're just a clanging symbol. Somebody needs to tell some churches that. You have to have love. We are to love one another. We're to stir one another up to love and good works. And then finally, we are to encourage one another. Like as a church, let us, let us, let us. This is what we do. We, I think it is impossible in today's world with all that's going on to encourage someone too much. I don't think you can. I don't think you can encourage someone too much. So let your words be seasoned with salt for those that you come around. Like you never know what that person next to you is going through. You do not know the phone call they just had the, the, the meeting they just had, the, what, what is on their brain, what their family's going through, what their child's going through. You, you have no clue what's going on in their lives. So be kind. Be Christ-like. Be the most patient and best patron a waiter or waitress has ever had. And the best tipper 
I mean, I mean that. We don't tip based upon performance. We tip like the grace that Jesus gave us. Unmerited favor. Show them what the gospel looks like. And please do not be like, um, they come to your table and you're like, hey, how can I, how can I pray for you today? And, and then you leave them a 50 cent tip. Like, if you're going to do that, tell them, you know, uh, Buddha likes you. Then leave them a 50 cent, right? Like, I mean, don't do that. Like, that's not good either. But I'm just saying, do not give a false picture of Jesus. Jesus is gracious. He is abounding with loving kindness. He is generous in all that He does. Reflect that. Reflect Him. Reflect His generosity, His unmerited favor. Show people that. That's what Christ calls us to. But specifically, like right here, let us encourage one another. Those you're sitting by right now, those you have classes with, those you're in community groups with, those you're in small group, encourage one another. Build one another up. I mean, that is what 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 is about, building up the church in all these various ways. But we're to do that too. Build one another up. We are climbers tied together on Everest. We are soldiers yoked together on the battlefield. We are teammates on the pitch or on the soccer field. We need one another. And all the more as the day of Christ's final appearing approaches. And so let us draw near. And note, that's about faith. And let us hold fast to the truth that Jesus saves sinners. And note, that's about hope. The hope of our confession. And let us stir one another up to love and good works. Okay? Love. And so faith... Hope and love. And the grace of these is what? Love. And that's not corny or punny. That's truth. And so let us live it. All right? Let's pray. Father, you've given to us. You have blessed. You have redeemed. You have... And, and have offered redemption to anyone who would simply say yes. Yes, I trust Jesus. Yes, I want forgiveness. Yes, I know that Jesus lived, died, buried, rose again in my place for my sins. And I take Him to be what makes me right with the Father. Not my works. And my performance. Jesus' performance for me. Father, is there anyone in this room who is not taken of that free gift? Father, today, today might they. May they decide even right now to trust you by faith. Father, for those in this room who have trusted you by faith, would you, 
or, or just did just a moment ago, would you sink deeply into our hearts, burn on our minds these truths? We can draw near. And you want that, and you invite that, and you love us. And we can revel in your love. We don't have to let us not believe the lie that you merely tolerate us. But remember Zephaniah 3, that you actually even sing over us. And not because of us, but because we are hidden in Christ. We are co-heirs. The eternal inheritance He earned is being given to us. So let us revel in that. Know that you love us. Know that you're with us. Know that you are for us. And Father, help us to have that same attitude towards our brothers and sisters and even those who, like, we don't know. Just that we meet in our daily lives to be a blessing to them. To show through our words and through our actions that there's something different. And that difference is Christ. Help us to this. Because we don't have it in us. But we do have the Holy Spirit living in us. To give us strength to live. As you've called us to live. And to repent and turn away. When we fail. We love you. We praise you. We thank you that you don't quit on us. And it's in Christ's name. We pray, amen.